Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance. What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is worthy of a second chance? My name is Raphael Rowe. My guest today is Richard Pendlebury, a former police officer who in the eyes of his colleagues was once a hero, but is now deemed a villain. Arrested for shoplifting, hacking into the police database, passing on sensitive information that could have derailed serious crimes are just some of the issues we discuss. Let's go back to why you became a police officer, because I suppose people who become police officers have, have you know, real reason because you're either liked or you're disliked by, by society, I suppose. There are two sides of that coin. Some are indifferent. So why did you decide to become a police officer and when did you become a police officer? So I was 21 when I came, became a police officer. I wanted to join the police because I wanted to, to make a difference. Uh, I wanted to um, help people and also on the other side where people were doing things wrong. So you joined the police force when you were 21, but when did you first start thinking about becoming a police officer? When did the fascination with, with that line of work interest you? So a very early age of um, seven year old when my next door neighbor was a police officer and it, it just fascinated me, the stories he'd tell me, the things he was doing. And from the age of seven, that's the focus. All I wanted to do was to join the police. Give me a, a bit of background about your, your years in the police force, what rank you rose to, etc. I joined Greater Manchester Police at 21. I became a sergeant after um, nine years. I worked in Bury in Greater Manchester. Part of my career, I also worked in Manchester. And um, obviously, I well, when I was um, sacked by the police, I was a sergeant. You talked about things through my career. Um, heroism, that was um, a guy that um, I went to a normal job whereby um, somebody reported a, like what, what was classed as a suspicious circumstances. 
and um, uh, ended up being attacked by a man who was armed with a knife uh, who CS gassed me. What injuries did you sustain? So I was wearing a stab vest at the time. My vest was um, slashed numerous times. Um, and uh, obviously at the time I was blinded by the CS gas, but I still managed to detain him. Uh, he was just on a rampage. And how do you remember your time as, as a police officer? I mean, what's your, your memories of being a police officer? Did you achieve what you set out to when you became a police officer at 20, 21? Make a difference and make arrests. Up until the point when, obviously, um, I left the police force, I um, I felt that I'd achieved uh, a massive amount within the police. Um, I ended up as a custody sergeant. That was one of my dream jobs that I loved. And that was, it might sound uncanny, but it was people that had been arrested and brought in front of a custody sergeant in a custody suite that had to be dealt with. I felt that I, that was my place because people that had been arrested, even though they had been arrested, they still need to be looked after. They still need to have that, um, you know, um, care. Um, you need to have that still out of consideration, even though they have done or may have not done anything wrong. You still got to, you know, look after them. And, and that was, if you like, my niche at the end. I, I really enjoyed that um, that role. That's really interesting because I suppose the picture painted in dramas and documentaries and films is that the custody sergeant is the ruthless one, the uncaring one. Here's another one, you know, elbow on the desk, just signing up this person. What have you got? Take off your clothes. Give me your belongings. No, you bloody can't. And they're dismissive. But you make it sound like it was a passionate job. Tell me more about being a custody sergeant and the sort of things you had to deal with on a daily basis. You didn't know what you were going to face. Obviously, you you may have just the normal uh, person that would come in for, say, a normal shoplifting or an assault or or something uh, minor, if you like. And then you'd have the more violent people that came in who may have mental health issues, people that have been uh, wrongfully um, arrested, wrongfully accused of something. And the way you, I had to, well, I had to deal with it as a person myself was, is I never, I never took that person. Uh, as being guilty i never took that person as being you know if they've been arrested for something then it's only suspicion they they, they weren't there to be to be uh, you're guilty and that's it we'll throw away the key so what were your responsibilities and what is a custody sergeant's responsibilities when uh, an accused comes into a police station is to basically look after them to make sure if they're on medication that the medication's obtained for them to make sure that the, the rights are given, to make sure that if they have any mental health issues, that they, you know, they get the right, like responsible adults. So some people might need to have somebody sat in on the interview, um, so look after their welfare, make sure that they're okay, obviously. And then that if you like the mundane things of making sure that they're fed, making sure that everything's okay with them. And 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 just generally, you know, in a, in a whole, it's like, um, I would say like a glorified, um, like a babysitter, whereby you would have to make sure that the person is is properly looked after, and um, you know the investigation still is going on, so you're still responsible for making sure that that investigation is is being done expeditiously. So you know, rather than the person being sat in a cell for say twelve, fourteen hours, you know, it's still your responsibility to make sure that investigation is is moved forward as quick as possible. And the dynamics there must become quite tricky because I suppose you know you, you've got to. You, you take responsibility for both the prisoner and the investigation. How does that create a conflict with, say, the investigating officers who may find that you're being obstructive in the job that they're trying to do 
or, you know, they're trying to bend your ear so that they can break a rule or two that you're not allowing them to do. So how do those dynamics play out? That's true. What you're saying, you're like a gatekeeper. So if you're like a gatekeeper who was responsible for a lot of things, but also as far as the investigation is concerned, you were responsible for making sure that that investigation was done properly. I hear what you're saying uh, regarding, you know, bending a few rules and stuff like that, because ultimately that, you know, um, situation scenario that you're talking about did try and occur where police officers probably would come to you and say, and tell you a story, which, you know, naturally you would like tend to believe. Um, but towards my last sort of like few years, things changed dramatically whereby, you know, rather than believing you were sort of like reading the statements, you were, you were going through the, the witness statements. You were, if you like, you were looking at all the evidence in front of you and you were making a decision whether or not that person there was further inquiries to be made and would be bailed or whether that file would be going to CPS for a decision to be made and that sort of thing. Um, and, and I do get what you're saying, Raphael, that sort of scenario whereby people do bend the rules, um, you know, it, it, it does happen. And people like me who was in that role wouldn't let that happen. Um, and sometimes you do get criticism you do get people complaining about you. And I'm talking about senior officers. I'm talking about because they're not getting their ticks in the book. They're not getting their um, statistics. They're not getting their charges. Um, it becomes a problem to them because they're governed by that. Whereas, you know, me, I wasn't. I was governed by the fact that was that person, you know, should, should they be charged? Should they be bailed? Was there more information that needed to be obtained? Was the investigation um, shortfall? Should we have to go and get some more uh, witnesses, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So it was it was a, a role whereby you did get a lot of criticism, and the, and to be fair, uh, and I know I still know quite a few of uh, custody sergeants. They they have a really demanding um, role. And how do you overcome those challenges? Because I suppose if your senior officers are putting pressure on you to get them the ticks that they need in the box to meet their their targets. Um, how, how do you withstand those challenges? Because it must be quite a burden for you to weigh up the two responsibilities. When I was there, you, you, you found that um, if you stuck to, you know, what was right and obviously did the right thing, then you would get criticised. You would find that, you know, as a custody side, you would have an inspector who was your boss and it would all, always really come down to the fact, did you have somebody that would support you? Did you have somebody that would basically um, have your back? I was fortunate. I had a really good inspector who basically, um, when we made decisions, she would back um, us up. And therefore, when the criticism came downhill, which it did, um, she would be the... Um, the stopgap. It's interesting, is it? Because as you describe this to me, the, the, my instinct is to think that you were disliked by the prisoners, i.e. The, those that come into the police being accused, because even though you were doing what you were doing in the right way, they still dislike you because you are a police officer and they don't want to be there. You're also being criticised by your colleagues, or at least some of your colleagues. How do you, as an individual, build resilience against those kind of negativities, which must be coming at you on a daily basis. The way I looked at dealing with a prisoner was how I would want to be dealt with, okay? So literally, if I was brought into a custody office, how I would want to be treated, um, 
and, and, and that was my approach to, to every single person that came into the custody office. And I think that was where things different with different custody sergeants have different approaches. I, I seem to um, get a lot of respect from people that were brought into the custody office. A lot of them were returning people would, would come back. And, and quite often, you know, when you, you were sat there, when they came through the, down, the, down, down the corridor and they saw your face, there was a smile on the face because they knew that, you know, it was me. Uh, and you know that that the, 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 they would be looked after properly. I'm not saying that all oh, custody sergeants don't do that, but that stigma that you put um, previously about you know custody sergeants being you know quite harsh and all that lot. There was a lot of them, and um, and I think that's where the problem you know rose, where you had um, issues and, and and trouble and and conflict um, you know within the custody office because people were dealt with totally differently. You know, each person like yourself, me, we deal with people in a different kind of way. Um, so on that side of it, it was how I would want to be dealt with if I was brought into a custody office. Um, and then on the on the flip side, the the management, the senior officers, um, and they still do it now, are all governed by um, statistics. And that's how they get, um, you know, get their figures and, and get their, um, I presume, within their appraisal system and all that sort of stuff, because they, they always were, there was always a push towards the end of the final, you know, the end of the year um, to get as many people in, as many people charged. And, and it was that type of conveyor belt policing, which, um, which in, in many ways was wrong. You mentioned that some of those individuals who would come into custody were or had been wrongly accused, wrongly arrested. Was that something you could distinguish there and then, or was it? It just turns out that in the end, the evidence proved that they didn't do it. Well, sometimes you didn't know until you know the evidence had come through with uh, with statements. Other times, people were arrested, and you could tell when they were actually put in front of the counter. Where did things start to go wrong for you? Because it sounds like you've had quite an interesting career um, as a police officer on the street and then behind the desk. But eventually you were dismissed by the police for, and tell me if in chronological order this is how it went. I was accused of theft at Asda uh, in 2014, whereby um, I was accused of stealing some women's clothing. Okay, Now that allegation... Um, was explainable um, very easily. With the evidence I had at the time, I could prove it was a mistake, okay? So that theft then turned into a theft and assault um, where they accused me of assaulting the security guard at the time. So it became, it was becoming more and more. So there was things being added on. And then the theft and assault then became theft and assault and perverting the course of justice. Um, that became because the security guard that accused me of all these uh, of this theft uh, and the assault um, then became, if you like my words, um, obsessed with um, me um, and was turning up at various locations where I was um, supermarkets, um, doctor surgeries, um, a, a road where he would. Um, try and um, run me off the road. Now, at the time, I was telling the police this was happening. Um, they didn't believe me. They said I was lying. I was lying to make it all up to discredit the security guard. 
And I wasn't lying. Um, the fact of the matter is, is it was all proven. The evidence was proven. What happened was, is the police charged me with the fact that they thought I was lying. And the evidence that proved my innocence was withheld by the police. So I'll give you an example. When he tried to run me off the road, mobile phone data in this day and age um, can pinpoint somebody accurately to a street. So my phone was pinpointed to a location. He didn't have a phone at the time, he said, and so therefore they couldn't corroborate the fact that he didn't have a phone. I know, and you know, everybody has a mobile phone this day, this day and age, and I was adamant that the situation occurred. Further down the line, I was able to obtain his mobile phone, and that mobile phone was then placed through a tracing system, which cost um, a lot of money prior to the Crown Court trial, which proved at the specific time, at the specific date, to the second that that person was on the same street as me, um, literally there. So the incident which was had happened, which they said I was lying about, was backed up by physical evidence. And what became what became knowledge within the trial was the mobile phone that he was using was hidden by the police. And there's only one reason why that was hidden, because they knew that that mobile phone proved I was telling the truth. Let me just take you back so that I've got this right. You were accused of shoplifting some women's clothes from Asda at the point the security guard, I'm just thinking logically here, intervened. Um, and as a result, you denied the allegation. And then whilst that case was pending, you were obviously charged with theft. Whilst that case was pending, these incidents with the security guard ensured um, and your complaints were ignored by the police force investigating your case whilst you were waiting for trial. Um, am I right in thinking that's how things evolved? Yeah. Yeah. So the theft and the assault came first. And then from the theft and the assault, the the security guard um, moved on forward with this harassment, if you like. Explain to me what the theft allegation was, what your version of events, because it seems to me that if somebody gets accused of theft or shoplifting, and it sounds like they're two different charges, it's because you go into a shop, you pinch something, and as you try and leave your court, what's your side of events? Because that's why I like to give people a second chance so that they can explain what people have not read in the newspapers because it's been reported that you were accused of shoplifting, but it doesn't give any explanation unless you were at that trial what you say happened. Two days before the alleged incident, my wife had gone to uh, Asda and bought an outfit and she was at a party uh, with the children two days earlier. So there was lots of photographs with that outfit, time and dated. I was on nights, so I never went to the party. Now, because of what happened in relation to um, the leave that I took, um, the outfit that um, my wife had purchased and had worn, when she said she wanted to return an item to Asda, at the time of her going into the Asda store, I remained in the car. The children at the time were two and three year old, so one needed a nappy changing. So I brought the children in um, a short time later, probably about 10 minutes later, at that time, Zoe was in the store, and um, she was got some shopping in the in the in the in the, in the bags and everything. And um, 
she said to me she didn't feel very well and she wanted to leave. So I went to the till and I bought the items in the um, cart and the outfit, yeah, which is the same outfit on the pictures. I asked her, was it the outfit she was returning? And she said at the time, yes. So that outfit, which was the same shoes, the same skirt and the same top, which I thought was the same outfit that she was returning, I placed in a bag. Okay, and I walked out of the store, paying for the items on in the in the trolley, and obviously not for the skirt. That was a mistake because obviously at the time, I obviously thought that the items were being returned, um, and it wasn't. It was a mistake. So when it became clear that I'd made that mistake, I'd actually turned round to the security guard and said, "Look, it's an error. I thought you know she was um, returning them," and that was proven um, weeks gone by because when I was interviewed, I was able to produce the, 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 the photograph of the exact same shoes, the exact same skirt, the exact same top, and said to them, it was just a, a clear misunderstanding. Why weren't they returned then? If they why, why did you put them back in the bag and then leave the store with them? Yeah, because um, at the time, uh, when, she, when she went into the store and she said she would return the items, yeah, um, she she hadn't um, returned her items and basically it was a miscommunication between me and her. But then from that point onwards, then it became more. So the theft became assault because he, um, the security guard had said that I'd um, assaulted him. So it sort of like started getting bigger and bigger. Um, okay. And the reason behind it um, was because the security guard didn't like the police. That was... Ultimately, when we went to Crown Court, that's what was admitted by the person who made these allegations. You mentioned that the the security guard didn't like the police. Uh, uh, did that sort of manifest itself because he saw you in your uniform or because of how you spoke to him? How did that evolve? No, what happened there, Raphael, was um, a couple of weeks earlier, I was in the Asda store and um, I'd gone up to him because there was a, a group um, um, in the store trying to steal quite a large amount of meat. Um, so I went over to him to highlight um, basically what was going on. Um, at that time, produced my warrant card um, to the same security guard um, to get a reaction from him. Uh, which, to be honest with you, actually took me back it, it, as if to say, you know, um, right, and and I said, like, well, you know, if you work, get your cameras on them and, uh, you know, get some help, I'll, I'll try and help you detain them. Um, and to, to point it basically where he turns around and said, it's got nothing to do with you. Um, so he knew who I was um, because I'd had, I'd had history in the store as well because I, I knew the actual um, store manager in there who had retired. Um, so he knew who I was because it was his boss and I was always talking to him in the store. So that's what you base your, I mean, during the trial, did anything else materialise that suggests this security guard had a dislike for the police? Maybe he himself had been arrested by the police um, or was a disgruntled reject from the police force? I don't know. When the trial occurred and all them points that went through, then we've just gone through, were given to him in the in the in the trial. Um, he basically admitted that he tried to join the police, um, didn't get in, um, and then took a dislike um, to various um, police officers, basically, um, and he admitted that in court. And just to be clear, so no one's in doubt, um, 
you went to Crown Court and you were tried for the theft, the perverting the course of justice and the assault, and you were acquitted of all three charges or were some of those charges dropped before you even got to court? There was five charges, three three counts of perverting the course of justice, an assault and a theft. But what I need to make clear, Raphael, is, is before going to court, um, I didn't rely on the police to investigate what, what they were saying was had happened. I decided to investigate my own case if you like now even though you were a police officer for 20 odd years you didn't trust the police no really why because of the way things were going you could see that there was something not right you could see that there was a a hidden agenda so um you're right i didn't trust them i took to investigating my own effect and my own offense and i produced my own evidence so Within the Crown Court system, the criminal justice system, um, as, as, as you're probably aware, when somebody's accused of a, of a crime, the police, you know, have to disclose um, the case file so that the solicitors can go through. When when somebody is um, accused, like myself, of something, I was able to investigate my own offence, but all that information which proved my innocence, I was able to keep until we got to the trial. So that it couldn't be interfered with, it couldn't be changed, it couldn't be um, doctored, it couldn't have been, it couldn't have got rid of. Um, so we were able to have the element of surprise. And when we went to court, um, it was proven um, that statements were, um, you know, uh, witnesses uh, hadn't written their own statements. CCTV had been uh, cut and pasted um, and changed. So that um, it looked like something that had happened and it hadn't happened. So it had been fitted together. And this was done by the police, was it? Yeah. And was this the same police force that you were working for? Yes. Same police force. Um, Officers that I used to work with um, were the ones responsible. Now, this um, investigation um, was driven... um, and, and I say, when I say that the investigation, the corrupt part of the investigation was driven by um, some senior officers within Greater Manchester Police. Um, that's a fact. Um, because the stuff and the um, evidence that I have and I've still got um, clearly shows the uh, altering of documents, um, the interference with... Um, electronic data, the, the illegal downloading of material, um, hacking of phones, the hiding of mobile phones, which proves your innocence, uh, the piecing of CCTV together. Um, I could go on, but basically the, the whole investigation, um, was very, very, um, um, what's the word? Corrupt. Yeah. You know what, what, what makes me, it- it really kind of confused here is if if this was a let's say an ordinary criminal who is in prison complaining that they were fitted up by the police they get dismissed as yeah just another prisoner complaining but you were somebody who had served you know his whole life in in the police force and you were one of um you, you know the police officers that worked with the police force that were fitting you up um, and so it's serious allegations. Um, why, Rick, did you become the target of such police corruption as you've described it when all 
the case centered around a bit of theft and a bit of argument with a security guard. I mean, how did it escalate from a, an incident which you've described as a mistake into something where senior officers focused in on Rick? Was it because as a custody officer, you didn't allow things to happen that would give them the statistics or was it more than that? So you've got two two angles. The first one you just said there, which was that you were doing your job within the custody office. The the, uh, the investigating officer, the inspector that investigated my um, theft um, offence, um, um, he um, had complained about me to my inspector uh, some weeks before. Um, the fact that I basically, in his words, was obstructive um, and making his officers... Um, you know, greater work for them because I wouldn't allow them to sort of like, um, you know, do what you said before, bring people in that shouldn't be brought in, you know, um, that kind of thing. I was, I was sticking to, to the rules and also I'm common sense in relation to so many people that came into the custody office. And then on the flip side of it all, uh, my inspector and the chief inspector and the chief superintendent who ran the custody office, um, that investigating officer had a serious issue with the um the superintendent um who was in charge of the custody um now that went back many many years to when they served within um bolton over um an i well an irish terrorist um within manchester and they fell out over that and when you eventually go go through the whole rigmarole of this investigation and the court case and and what happened to me and and everything that followed, because even though I was charged with um, the theft, the assault, and perverted course of justice, the three senior officers that I've just spoke to you about, um, they were also arrested, they were also spoken to, and they were also accused of perverting the course of justice. And the reason why they were accused of perverting the course of justice is because they said that it was a conspiracy, that they were trying to help me out. And that was totally false. It was totally made up. Um, and that's been proven. Um, and it, it was it was like the, you know, the chief constable uh, had decided that he wanted to out um, some, you know, corrupt police officers. And unfortunately for, for me, I was the pawn of, of this, this um, investigation and this investigating officer who who literally saw himself as uh, maybe a, a promotion or maybe something like that, that he could bring down some senior ranking officers within Greater Manchester Police. And um, it was just far-fetched. It, it literally was far-fetched. And um, it's been proven. The, 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 the senior officer, the chief inspector and the inspector have all, um, now we, well, apart from the chief inspector, now left the police force and taking their own action against Great Manchester Police and won. So to summarise the two things that we've been talking about, the first is the outcome of the court case where you were charged with theft, perverting the course of justice and assault. Um, what was the outcome and conclusion of that case? So that was um, a not guilty on all counts. Um, and like I said to you, within the trial, it was made quite clear of the um, the evidence that had been altered, um, evidence that had been changed. I'll go back to your point a short time ago, Raphael, where you said a normal person who goes, who, who would go through this with a, a police officer um, uh, and maybe find themselves in the same situation as me where it was false. How would they deal with it? Um, 
that's the problem. And 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 the problem you've got is people don't have the um you know the foresight to be able to investigate their own offences because whilst the police investigate some months down the line it's too late because the evidence that they could have obtained the CCTV everything like that's all gone um and and you talk about a second chance that's the reason why I've now decided to um help people that are saying that they have been falsely accused or wrongly convicted because I'm not saying everybody is uh, falsely accused or wrongly convicted, but what I'm saying is, is there are people out there that unfortunately um, aren't able to help their cause because it goes back to the police investigate the offense, the offenses, the police gather the evidence, the police send it to CPS, the CPS then authorize the charge, the charge then goes to the uh, to the person, the file goes to the solicitor. And that file then is the basis on how um, you plead guilty or not guilty. So when I was um, shown the file with my first barrister, the file came to, to them and they turned around to me and said, Rick, plead guilty. And my words to them were, why would I do that when I've not done anything wrong? Now, they said to me, well, plead guilty and we'll get you a lesser sentence. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. So you can see how members of the public go through this. Am I going to go down for six months or am I going to get five years? And that balance, people are going to go for it. So that's why people are getting wrongly convicted. And this is why uh, when when we first spoke about it, this is why I've set up um, Wrongfully Accused Now, which is a website where I can help people that are literally accused um, or convicted of things that they haven't done. I, I, I mean, for those who are listening, I'm nodding away vigorously as you were just describing that and shaking my head in disbelief because, as many will know, I myself went through that very experience where the police and the Crown Prosecution Service compiled a case that are at face value, even at face value, it wasn't as solid as they wanted it to be, um, but it wasn't until I spent many years the architect from a prison cell to find the evidence that that you were fortunate to find before you ended up being wrongly convicted. It took me 12 long years from behind a prison cell. So I'm nodding away uh, in sentiment and agreement with exactly what you said. If you don't have the ability to discover that evidence for yourself or even rely on a solicitor or lawyer who doesn't have the inclination to go out there and find it for you or the means and resources then you can languish as a wrongly convicted person. So so well done you. I will talk to you a little bit more about the organisation you set up. But first I want to ask you about the second allegation, which is the allegation um, for which you were sacked um, from the police force, as I understand it, which is misconduct in a public office or whatever the charge was, gross misconduct. Is that related to the theft or is this a completely different charge? So what happened was, is once I was found not guilty, um, the police, the way they, the system works, then they then internally charge you with um, the same offences, okay? So even though I was found not guilty, they internally charged me with the same offences that I'd just been found not guilty for, which was obviously the five offences. Um, and that's when I started fighting back and saying, well, I have the evidence to prove, um, as in the court case, that this is all malicious and false. 
So within months of, of doing that, um, they decided that um, they were going to put them to one side. And then they developed another um, offence, which was that, as you said, that I'd illegally passed on information. Um, and it was actually to my wife that I'd passed the information. That's what they're saying. Um, via um, a phone call. Um, now, when the gross misconduct hearing occurred, I never attended because um, it was a done deal. Um, I knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, I knew exactly the, what, what was going to, what I was going to face. Um, and um, ultimately, as you said, I was sacked. But what I will say to you is, is around that um, so-called allegation is them producing a case file which showed that I had accessed a computer system on a certain day at a certain time. I wasn't even on duty. I wasn't even at the building. I wasn't even there at the time of these allegations. Um, so just to, you know, put it in perspective, Raphael, the, the, the mistrust within me and Greater Manchester Police uh, was at that point was massive. And at that hearing, I have on record on an audio tape, the barrister for Greater Manchester Police turning round to the presiding chief officer saying, if this investigation was corrupt, so what? If the investigation into you that eventually led to your being sacked from the police force was corrupt, so what? Yes. Let me ask you this blatantly. Um, did you obtain... Um, information from the police files that you passed on to your wife, innocently or not, that although you didn't attend the misconduct hearing, the the initial allegation is true or false? No, it's false. It's totally false. The 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 files that they produced and the downloads that they produced from the phones um, were all um, what's the word. Um, able to be changed, you know, and I've still got the documents now to this day, I've still got the documents. Um, and, you know, the thing is, Raphael, when, when it comes down to, to how, what the, the allegations and how it went for the years that this carried on for, cause it went on for four years, this, um, the, 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 the house that, um, I lived in with my children and my wife was raided um subsequently twice um you know with false accusations of that I was a drug dealer that I was holding firearms um it was it was surreal and they were using this as a as a means to um well on one occasion um assault me in front of uh, my children it was it was horrific and like i said the other day, the 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 youngest child who was three at the time was placed under children's services uh, mental health and had to un undergo therapy. And this is this is all can be proven, Raphael. This this is literally not something that I can make up. This is something that uh, mental health services in Manchester can 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 agree, you know, can back up because she was under them for six months, having witnessed her father being beaten by the police. The police force that you once worked for. The same officers that I worked for. 
What's interesting to me, and I suppose will be to the listeners, is that we hear of these kind of scenarios of the police targeting, you know, known criminals or people that have been involved in criminality um, or are believed to be a part of a criminal gang organisation or just to be your, 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 your ordinary criminal, where they make allegations about the police kind of targeting them um, and, and it's often dismissed. But you were one of their own. Um, and they were targeting you in, in, in this way, despite the fact that you served 23 years in the police force and must have built up a, a bank of friendships um, that people in the force must have witnessed this happening to you, who must have been outraged. Did any of your former colleagues step up to the plate and say, this is wrong? Um, in, in short answer, no. Um, Raphael, the way the police and the way... Every single police force is run by a chief constable, certainly the one in Manchester. It's run by fear. If somebody speaks out or somebody says something out of turn, um, their life becomes a problem. It becomes hell. Because if they cause problems for um, senior officers, um, then they don't like that. They don't like the truth. They like people towing the line. Um, there's many, many people within um, Greater Manchester who have now left Greater Manchester Police. One particular senior officer that I'm thinking of who knocked on my door um, after he retired and said to me that um, he was part of the investigation into me and that he wanted to apologise because um, he knew that it was all wrong and that they were just out to get me. And it was on his conscious, and and you know for him to do that was great, but it it took him to do that after he'd retired because the fear of of being taken down within the organisation and outspoken, um, it just causes people to be targeted by the internal, if you like, the internal professional standards department, which are the ones that, um, if you like, police the police. It's so interesting that you're speaking so candidly about the police culture. You know, Great Manchester Police have, you know, for, for many years had a reputation, as has the Met Police down here in in, in London. Um, a couple of things. First thing is you, you, you talk about um, being the target of, of police corruption. And is that solely, do you believe now, to do with the fact that when you were a custody sergeant, you didn't always allow the rules to be broken just by doing your job. Do you believe that you were the target of all of this because you tried to do your job properly? I think it was one of the reasons why I became um, basically targeted um, as time went on. I think... The other reason was, as well, is that they saw as an opportunity to take down um, a senior officer who was very much, um, when I say he was a good man, he, he would um, he would support and he, he wasn't like a, your normal senior officer that would, um, um, you know, um, rule with like an iron fist, if you like. He was very much approachable, um, this man, and... and they wanted this man to be taken down. So I, in the grand scheme of things, the, the fact that I was doing my job and, you know, I was doing the right thing by doing what I was doing within the job, 
um, was one of the reasons, but also it was to do with the senior officers. And then things sort of like ran ahead with themselves because they saw the opportunity to um, change things, to um, to make things, um, the evidence appear to be different. Um, it, it, it just, it ran with itself and it became, it became an obsession to me. Uh, it became an obsession, sorry, that I think they became obsessed with getting me and then eventually, um, because like I said to you, the rest of the other officers eventually taking them down as well and they couldn't do it. I mean, there's two things that I'm thinking of. I'm thinking one, you mentioned earlier on that one of the purposes of this this targeting was because the police were, were they publicly announcing that they were dealing with internal corruption? So were they saying that you and the colleagues that they targeted were part of a corrupt set of police officers that they were bringing down? Because that's what you're saying they were. They um, basically wanted, um, and that's how they portrayed it, they were going to take down these corrupt police officers, one of me included, uh, an inspector, a chief inspector, and a, um, a superintendent, chief superintendent. And, and, and although, yes, what you're saying is, is the four of us hadn't done, um, anything wrong, uh, apart from the original, you know, mistake with the theft. Um, everything else that followed that was all, um, concocted by them. And like I've said to you, the actual investigation from a senior, senior level, um, and I'm talking from the top, the chief constable, um, he directed it all and he was the one that made the decisions of what was going on. He was fully culpable in everything that happened with me and the other three officers. So fighting back is what you did, other than fighting back, challenging what you were being accused of, finding the evidence that was able to substantiate your side of the story. Did you take any other action? Have you taken any other action against those officers who forced you out of the police force and levelled all these allegations against you? I've been to the civil court on two occasions for um, data protection um, breaches um, and they both counts, they settled out of court before it went to court. Um, they haven't broadcast that anywhere. Um, it's not recorded anywhere. However, I have the paperwork to prove Greater Manchester Police settled out of court on two occasions. Settled out of court financially to you for data breaches. And was that in relation to these allegations and cases that? Yep. So those are small victories or big victories for you in proving that something was wrong? Yeah. Yeah. It's part of a, a, an accumulation of, of what they were doing. So, and then I put in a complaint to the um, investor group. Powers um, uh, Tribunal down in London uh, regarding the illegal um, surveillance and illegal phone tapping, uh, illegal downloading from my phones. Um, well, I was granted a hearing just before COVID started, so I'm not sure when that's going to be. Um, however, um, I have been granted it. Um, so I am fighting back on many fronts because it, it's close to to my heart the fact that you know I'm lucky I can fight back and you said the word second chance I have got a second chance because you know I was able to to investigate my own offense um and that's the difference that many many people out there haven't got how do you define your second chance and what is the second chance you're trying to give to other people 
I've set up um, wrongfullyaccusednow.co.uk because the way I see it is, is if somebody is has been um, falsely accused um, or wrongfully accused, um, if you can investigate something parallel with the police um, independently, you'll probably find a lot of the evidence which proves that person's innocence. Uh, I'm not saying everybody's innocent and I'm not saying that everybody that's not innocent will contact me. You're more than likely to get the people that haven't done anything wrong. So as, as, as you know, um, as you've suffered it yourself, when an investigation occurs, it can be steered in one direction. And that one direction is to find that person guilty. So where has you have um, an abundance of inquiries to to to, uh, to take which will take you in a different direction to prove you know you you were not guilty. They steer it in one direction and all the evidence to prove the innocence is pushed to one side. Um and that's what I'm about and you know um it's about helping people. It's about um giving them the opportunity of a fair trial. Um it's it's about um producing the evidence either to a solicitor, because as you know, solicitors unfortunately don't go out and do the, uh, the, the research and the, um, you know, the statement taking and the witness speaking to. Well, that's not what they do here. I mean, it's sometimes what you watch in these American dramas because they have the autonomy to go out and investigate. You know, you see these lawyers in these dramas going off and covering you know, millions of miles and gathering the evidence. But that's not what happens here in this U- in the UK, is it? It's just the police who investigate and they pass on a file of evidence to the Crown Prosecution Service, who then make a decision about whether or not to charge someone. But the, the accused has no means of investigating. And that's where you're saying you are stepping up and coming in. Yeah. So the, you're right. It's because the file that sent to a solicitor the solicitor will advise the accused on the file they get. And, and that sometimes that's too late, Raphael. That's too late. When it's six months down the line, that's too late. And you find that at that point then, um, you're in, an, you know, in, a, in a situation whereby the person's going to be found guilty. And no matter what they've done or you know, the, the fact that they're innocent or they've been falsely accused, because it's been so long down the line, and like I've said to you regarding evidence gathering, you're not going to be able to get the evidence that you would have got um, if someone came to you and said, I've just been arrested for this. I haven't done it. What can I do? And there's the difference. You sit down with someone, you go through it. We, we've, you know, we fill the, the gaps in. We make sure we, we cover everything and we've investigated. We, you know, we go back to the scene. We look for CCTV. We, look, we do everything we can. Are you able to do that, though? Because I, I suspect that once a police embark on an investigation, um, it would be subjudice for journalists like myself to go parallel investigating because you could trample on, you know, you, you could be accused of all sorts of things, perverting the course of justice being one of them. So how do you go about giving people this second chance by helping them carry out the initial investigation before it's too late without getting yourself in trouble or perverting the course of justice? I, I'm when you say subjudice, you're right in what you're saying. So obviously, you wouldn't be doing anything in relation to to broadcast what you're doing. But what you would do is you'd be working for the for the person that's been accused and the evidence that you gather. So it would be like if you like the person that would be has been accused has gathered their own evidence to produce, you know, for their solicitor or, or, or um, eventually for the crown court or the magistrates court. So um, you would you'd be gathering um, everything 
that you know maybe hasn't been gathered by the place um, or hasn't been covered by the place, um, which which would stay you know a, a trial, a fair trial to to cover everything and not just what's produced in front of a solicitor by the CPS. And I think that's where the criminal justice system, as you've suffered yourself in this country, is is wrong because there is no impartial, um, you know, you rely on the police to do an impartial job. You, you rely on the police to do um, a good investigation. And I'm not saying they don't do. What I'm saying, you have a small minority of people, you know, that are there and, and really don't think about the effects that it has on the likes of you, the likes of me, the likes of Joe Public out there who literally, you know, um, would be spending years and years in prison. I can only speak from experience here and God, how it would have helped me during the initial investigation into the charges of murder and robberies that I was eventually wrongly convicted for, if only... There was an organisation like yours at the time out there investigating my case, you know, going in search of my alibi witnesses or, you, you, you know, questioning some of the evidence that was being presented, which was obviously fabricated at the time. Uh, and that just wasn't done. You're absolutely right. So I, I can see the value in the work that that you are doing. Can I just ask, have you worked on anybody's case where, you've been able to, at this stage, um, help them in the way that you are embarking on trying to help other wrongly accused people or people that believe they've been wrongly accused? I've only been going a short period of time, but I have helped um, a few people. um, And I did have a phone call um, only last week where we'd worked on a case with a a gentleman that had been accused um, of fraud. He was facing a Crown Court trial uh, in two weeks' time, uh, we um, evidence gathered. We went through the case file. We proved um, a lot of the stuff that the uh, accused had said was true. Um, and last week, um, the CPS uh, offered no evidence. So he phoned me up, and he was ecstatic. Um, and that it was, yeah. And I think the, the the thing the thing with all the thing with all this is like what's when you said what have you done, Rafi? What, uh, what have you done? I have attended the House of Commons. Um, I know uh, the Miscarriage of Justice Committees. I've been to, to some of them. I've um, I've spoken to some MPs about what's gone on in relation to um, how this system needs to change within um, you know the police and and the investigation side. You know, so I'm if you like I'm heavily active in trying to you know get their message out there that although the police do an absolutely amazing job and 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 you know we couldn't do without them that there is times when people are being um wrongfully accused wrongfully convicted very much like yourself who 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 have no means of of you know recovery you know no means of actually being able to have a fair trial no means of being able to you know, pass on their information because, you know, like I said to you, when it comes down the line and you've been charged and it's six months down the line, you've got that case file. That's what you get uh, tried on. And, um, you know, if that case file is, is all against you, then that's it. It's an uphill struggle once you've been convicted. So just to clarify, this is not an organisation 
whereby you investigate those that have, investigate those cases, look for evidence, um, and support those who have already been wrongly convicted and maybe imprisoned or not imprisoned, wrongly convicted. This is purely the initial process. The initial part is obviously quite vital in relation to, you know, um, trying to help somebody who's due to go to trial. But um, what you're saying about somebody that has been convicted, um, um, no, that that's still um, a case where you would go through the case files and, you know, uh, very much like yourself when you went to the CCRC and, you know, your case was eventually uh, rightly uh, dismissed. Um you know, somebody would have had to gone through your file and produced, you know, the case for the criminal uh, review um, board to, to make their decision that it would go back to court. So no, that that is that is the case, still the case, yeah. And and you know that is still something that I would look at doing. But um, I'm trying to get the people that stop them going through the suffering um, of getting to the point of getting to court and going to prison because of a false allegation or a wrongful conviction, trying to you know, meet it head on and say, right, let's go and investigate. Let's go and look at this. Let's go, you know, rather than leave it until someone goes to, to prison and then pick up the file afterwards, which is obviously very difficult. And as you, as you know yourself, 12 years down the line, you know, it takes a long time to go through the process. Um, if you can get them at an early stage, uh, if someone's arrested and then comes to me, then, we, you know, it's trying, you know, do what we can to get the evidence to prove their innocence. But how has this whole experience changed Rick Pendlebury as a man who worked for the police for a long time, is now outspoken about what really goes on within the police force um, on occasions in, in some parts? Um, how has it changed you? It's changed me massively um, as a person. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it was your family life was you would, would suffer. Um, seeing my children being put under the mental health services, having seen what they did to me, it was um, it, it it put me in a very dark place, to be honest with you, Raphael. And it was a case of like I would continue suffering, and my mental health would have deteriorated, or I had to try and do something to get out of it and um, try and make a difference. And I'll be quite open with you. I see a police vehicle um, behind my car. I see a police vehicle when I'm walking down the street and my heart races. And that's because that's the fear that's still instilled with me because of what they've done to me in the past. It's, it's, it stayed with me and I'm sure it'll stay with me forever. You talked about the, the silence within the police force and how one officer after he retired came and apologised for not speaking up at the time. But you yourself were in that situation, I suppose, for 23 years where you had to remain silent. And so do you see this also as maybe the second chance where you can speak vocally about what not just happened to you, but what goes on within the police force, which is something you probably couldn't do whilst you were a serving police officer? A lot of things within the police force um, I now know are hidden. A lot of people that, you know, try to speak out, um, if you like, uh, are either removed, um, you know, silenced, warned, disciplined, you know, ruled by an iron fist, if you like, Raphael. And, that, and that's the problem. That's literally what happens, you know, within these organisations, Great Manchester, the Metropolitan uh, and other forces. What do you think about 
joining the police force now? Knowing what I know, Raphael, um, and what I've been through, if you ask me, would I join the police again if I had the opportunity? The answer would be no, without a doubt. Not that I don't want to help people, not that I wouldn't have the same principles. It's just how the police forces are run and how um, the senior officers, you know, um, it's not about the people that do the jobs at the bottom, which is the police officers, the sergeants uh, who are on the streets, who do an absolutely sterling job. You're governed by people who um, have a personal objective. And and many times that can be quite harsh, uh, very corrupt, um, and one-sided in relation to many of them when they get to the rank of chief constable, all they want to do is get the uh, the sir before the name. Um, it's brilliant listening to your story, Rick, and I do appreciate you sharing um, your story. Is there anything that we've not talked about that you want to share with us before I say thank you and goodbye? No, no, I think that's. Uh, I think we've covered everything, Raphael. Thanks, thanks for your time. Thank you very much and, and good luck on your journey of, of, of enjoying your second chance and giving other people a second chance. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Raphael. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allow you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited. Original music by J-Row Productions. Design work by Studio Minerva. And myself, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.